Chapter Five, Part One, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume One, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: The Depot Journey, Part One. The Dropping of the Daylight in the West, Robert Browning. January to March, nineteen eleven. Scott, Wilson, Lieutenant Evans, Bowers, Oates, Mears, Atkinson, Cherry Garrard, Gran, Keon, Crean, Ford, Dimitri. Imaginative friends of the thirteen men who started from Cape Evans on January twenty fourth, nineteen eleven, may have thought of them as athletes, trained for some weeks or months to endure the strains which they were to face, sleeping a good nine hours a night, eating carefully regulated meals, and doing an allotted task each day under scientific control. They would be far from the mark. For weeks we had turned in at midnight, too tired to take off our clothes, and had been lucky if we were allowed to sleep until 5 a.m. We had eaten our meals when we could, and we had worked in the meantime just as hard as it was physically possible to do. If we sat down on a packing-case we went to sleep. And we finally left the camp in a state of hurry, bordering upon panic, since the ice to the south of us, the road to the barrier, was being nibbled away by thaw, winds and tides, it was impossible to lead the ponies down from the cape on to the sea-ice. The open sea was before us, and on our right front. It was necessary to lead them up among the lava-blocks which lay on the escarpment of Erebus, south-eastwards towards Land's End, and thence to slide them down a steep but rubbly slope to the ice which still remained. As a matter of fact, that ice went out the very next day. During the last two days provisions had been bagged with the utmost dispatch. Sledges packed, letters scribbled, clothing sorted and rough alterations to it made. Scott was busy with Bower's help, making such arrangements as could be suggested for a further year's stay, for which the ship was to order the necessaries. Oates was busy weighing out the pony food for the journey, sorting harness and generally managing a most unruly mob of ponies. Many were the arguments as to the relative value of a pair of socks, or their equivalent weight in tobacco, for we were allowed twelve pounds of private gear apiece, to consist of everything which we did not habitually wear on our bodies. This included such things as sleeping boots, sleeping socks, extra pair of day socks, a shirt, tobacco and pipe, notebook for diary and pencil, extra balaclava helmet, extra woollen mitts, housewife containing buttons, needles, darning needles, thread and wool, extra pair of finesco, big safety pins with which to hang up our socks, and perhaps one small book. My most vivid recollection of the day we started is the sight of Bowers out of breath, very hot, and in great pain from a bad knock which he had given his knee against a rock, being led forward by his big pony, Uncle Bill, over whom temporarily he had but little control. He had been left behind in the camp, giving the last instructions about the storage of cases and management of provisions, and had practically lost himself in trying to follow us over what was then unknown ground. He was wearing all the clothing which was not included in his personal gear, for he did not think it fair to give the pony the extra weight. He had bruised his leg in an ugly way, and for many days he came to me to bandage it. He was afraid that if he let the doctors see it, they would forbid him to go forward. He had had no sleep for seventy-two hours. The first night, January 24th, we pitched our inexperienced camp not far from Hut Point, 
but our first taste of sledging was not without incident. Starting with the ponies only, we walked them to Glacier Tongue, where the ice and open water joined, and as we went we watched the ship pass us out in the strait and moor up to the end of the Tongue. Getting the ponies across the Tongue with its shallow but numerous crevasses and holes was ticklish work, but we tethered them safely off the Terra Nova, which meanwhile was landing the dogs, sledges and gear. Then we got some lunch on board. A large lead in the sea ice to the south of the Tongue necessitated some hours' work in man-hauling all the sledges along the back of the Tongue, until a way could be found down onto safe ice. We then followed with the ponies. "'If a pony falls into one of these holes I shall sit down and cry,' said Oates. Within three minutes my pony was wallowing, with only its head and forelegs visible, in a mess of brash and snow, which had concealed a crack in the sea ice which was obviously not going to remain much longer in its present position. We got lashings round him and hauled him out. Poor Guts! He was fated to drown. But in an hour he appeared to have forgotten all about his mishap, and was pulling his first load towards Hut Point as gallantly as always. The next day we took further stores from the ship to the camp which had formed. Some of these loads were to be left on the edge of the barrier when we got there, but for the present we had to relay, that is, take one load forward and come back for another. On the 26th we sledged back to the ship for our last load, and said good-bye on the sea-ice to those men with whom we had already worked so long, to Campbell and his five companions who were to suffer so much, to Cheery Pennell and his ship's company. Before we left, Scott thanked Pennell and his men for their splendid work. They have behaved like bricks, and a finer lot of men never sailed in a ship. It was a little sad to say farewell to all these good fellows and Campbell and his men. I do most heartily trust that all will be successful in their ventures, for indeed their unselfishness and their generous high spirit deserve reward. God bless them. Four of that depot party were never to see these men again and Pennell, commander of the Queen Mary, went down with his ship in the Battle of Jutland. Two days later, January 28th, we sledged our first loads on to the barrier. By that day we had done nearly ninety miles of relay work, first from the ship at Glacier Tongue to our camp off Hut Point, and then onwards. Those first days of sledging were wonderful. What memories they must have brought to Scott and Wilson, when, to us, who had never seen them before, these much-discussed landmarks were almost like old friends. As we made our way over the frozen sea, every sea-hole was of interest, and every type of wind-swept snow of novelty. The peak of terror opened out behind the crater of Erebus, and we walked under Castle Rock and Danger Slope until, rounding the promontory, we saw the little jagged Hut Point, and on it the cross placed there to Vince's memory, all unchanged. There was the old Discovery Hut, and the bay in which the Discovery lay, and from which she was almost miraculously freed at the last moment, only to be flung upon the shoal which runs out from the point, where some tins of the old discovery days lie on the bottom still and glint in the evening sun. And around about the bay were the heights of which we had read Observation Hill and Crater Hill, separated from it by the gap, through which the wind was streaming. Of course it was, for this must be the famous Hut Point Wind. A few hundred more blizzards had swept over it since those days, but it was all just the same, even to Ferrar's little stakes placed across the glacierettes to mark their movement, more even to the footsteps still plainly visible on the slopes. The ponies were dragging up to nine hundred pounds each these days, and though they did not seem to be unduly distressed, two of them soon showed signs of lameness. This caused some anxiety, 
but the trouble was mended by the rest. On the whole, though the surface was hard, I think we were giving them too much weight. The sea ice off Hut Point and Observation Hill was already very dangerous, and had we then had the experience and knowledge of sea ice with which we can now look back, it is probable that we should not have slept so easily upon its surface. Parties travelling to Hut Point and beyond in summer must keep well out from the point and Cape Armitage, but all haste was being made to transport the necessary stores on to the barrier surface, where a big home depot could be made, so far as we could judge, in safety. The pressure ridges in the sea ice between Cape Armitage and Pram Point, which are formed by the movement of the barrier, were large, and in some of the hollows countless seals were playing in the water. Judging by the size of these ridges and by the thickness of this ice when it broke up, the ice south of Hut Point was at least two years old. I well remember the day we took the first of our loads on to the barrier. I expect we were all a little excited, for to walk upon the barrier for the first time was indeed an adventure. What kind of surface was it, and how about these beastly crevasses of which we had read so much? Scott was ahead, and so far as we could see, there was nothing but the same level of ice all round, when suddenly he was above us, walking up the sloping and quite invisible drift. A minute after, and our ponies and sledges were up and over the tide crack, and beneath us soft and yielding snow, very different from the hard wind-swept surface of the frozen sea which we had just left. Really it was rather prosaic and a tame entrance, but the barrier is a tricky place, and it takes years to get to know her. On our outward journey this day Oates did his best to kill a seal. My own tent was promised some kidneys if we were good, and our mouths watered with the prospect of the hoosh before us. The seal had been left for dead, and when on our homeward way we neared the place of his demise, Titus went off to carve our dinner from him. The next thing we saw was the seal lolloping straight for his hole, while Oates did his best to stab him. The quarry made off safely, not much hurt, for, as we discovered later, a clasp-knife is quite useless to kill a seal. Oates returned with a bad cut, as his hand had slipped down the knife, and it was a long time before he was allowed to forget it. This barrier, which we were to know so well, was soft, too soft for the ponies, and apparently flat. Only to our left, some hundreds of yards distant, there were two little snowy mounds. We got out the telescope which we carried, but could make nothing of them. While we held our ponies, Scott walked towards them, and soon we saw him brushing away snow, and uncovering something dark beneath. They were tents, obviously left by Shackleton or his men, when the Nimrod was embarking his southern party from the barrier. They were snowed up outside, and iced up inside almost to the caps. Afterwards we dug them out, a good evening's work. The fabric was absolutely rotten. We just tore it down with our hands, but the bamboos and caps were as sound as ever. When we had dug down to the floor-cloth, we found everything intact as when it was left. The cooker was there, and a primus. Scott lighted it and cooked a meal, and we often used it afterwards. And there were round-trees cocoa, bovril, brands extract of beef, sheep's tongues, cheese and biscuits, all open to the snow, and all quite good. We ate them for several days. There is something impressive in these first meals off food which has been exposed for years. It was on a Saturday, January 28th, that we took our first load a short half-mile on to the barrier, and left it at a place afterwards known as the Fodder Depot. Two days later we moved our camp one mile, 1,200 yards, further on to the barrier, and here was erected the main depot known as Safety Camp. 
safety because it was supposed that even if a phenomenal break-up of sea-ice should occur and take with it part of the barrier this place would remain subsequent events proved the supposition well founded this short bit of barrier sledging gave all of us food for thought for the surface was appallingly soft and the poor ponies were sinking deep it was obvious that no animals could last long under such conditions but somehow shackleton had got his four a long way there was now no hurry for there was plenty of food it was only when we went on from here that we must economize food and travel fast it was determined to give the ponies a rest while we made the depot and rearranged the sledges which we did on the following day we had with us one pair of pony snowshoes a circle of wire as a foundation hooped round with bamboo and with beckets of the same material the surface suggested their trial which was completely successful the question of snowshoes had been long and anxiously considered and shoes for all the ponies were at cape evans but as we had so lately landed from the ship the ponies had not been trained in their use and they had not been brought scott immediately sent wilson and meares with a dog team to see whether the sea ice would allow them to reach cape evans and bring back shoes for the other ponies meanwhile the next morning saw us trying to accustom the animals to wearing snowshoes by exercising them in the one pair we possessed but it seemed no use continuing to do this after the dog party came in they had found the sea ice gone between glacier tongue and winter quarters and so were empty-handed they reported that a crevasse at the edge of the tongue had opened under the sledge which had tilted back into the crevasse but had run over it these glacier tongue crevasses are shallow things gran fell into one later and walked out of the side of the tongue onto the sea ice beyond it was determined to start on the following day with five weeks provisions for men and animals to go forward for about fourteen days depot two weeks provisions and return most unfortunately atkinson would have to be left behind with crean to look after him he had chafed his foot and the chafe had separated to his great disappointment there was no alternative but to lie up luckily we had another tent and there was the cooker and primus we had dug out of shackleton's tent poor crean was to spend his spare time in bringing up loads from the fodder depot to safety camp and worse still from his point of view dig a hole downwards into the barrier for scientific observations we left the following morning february second and marched on a patchy surface for five miles camp four the temperature was above zero and scott decided to see whether the surface was not better at night on the whole it is problematical whether this is the case we came to the conclusion later that the ideal surface for pulling a sledge on ski was found at a temperature of about plus sixteen degrees but there is no doubt whatever that ponies should do their work at night when the temperature is colder and rest and sleep when the sun has its greatest altitude and power and so we camped and turned into our sleeping bags at four p m and marched again soon after midnight doing five miles before and five miles after lunch lunch if you please being about one a m and a very good time for just then the daylight seemed to be thin and bleak and one always felt the cold our road lay eastward through the strait some twenty-five miles in width which runs between the low rather uninteresting scarp of white island to the south and the beautiful slopes of erebus and terror to the north this part of the barrier is stagnant but the main stream in front of us unchecked by land flows uninterruptedly northwards towards the ross sea only where the stream presses against the bluff white island and most important of all cape crozier and rubs itself against the nearly stationary ice upon which we were travelling pressures and rendings take place forming some nasty crevasses 
It was intended to steer nearly east, until this line was crossed some distance north of White Island, and then steer due south. It is most difficult, on a large snow surface, to say whether it is flat. Certainly there are plenty of big crevasses for several miles in the neighbourhood, though they are all generally well covered, and we found only very small ones on this outward journey. I am inclined to think that there are also some considerable pressure waves. As we came up to Camp 5, we floundered into a pocket of soft snow, in which one pony after another plunged deeper and deeper, until they were buried up to their bellies and could move no more. I suppose it was an old crevasse filled with soft snow, or perhaps one of the pressure ridges hollows which had been recently drifted up. My own pony somehow got through with his sledge to the other side, and every moment I expected the ground to fall below us, and a chasm to swallow us up. The others had to be unharnessed and led out. The only set of snowshoes were then put on to Bower's big pony, and he went back and drew the stranded sledges out. Beyond we pitched our camp. On February 3rd to 4th we marched for ten miles to Camp 6. In the last five miles we crossed several crevasses. Our first, and I heard Oates ask someone what they looked like. Black as hell, he said, but we saw no more just now, for this march carried us beyond the line of pressure which runs between White Island and Cape Crozier. The halt was called Corner Camp, as we turned here and marched due south. Corner Camp will be heard of again and again in this story. It is thirty miles from Hut Point. By 4pm it was blowing our first barrier blizzard. We were to find out afterwards that a corner camp blizzard blows nearly as often as a hut point wind. The bluff seems to be the breeding place for these disturbances, which pour out towards the sea by way of Cape Crozier. Corner camp is in the direct line between the two. One summer blizzard is much like another. The temperature, never very low, rises, and you are not cold in the tent. Sometimes a blizzard is a very welcome rest after weeks of hard pulling, dragging yourself awake each morning, feeling as though you had only just gone to sleep, with the mental strain, perhaps, which work among crevasses entails, it is almost pleasant to be put to bed for two or three days. You may sleep dreamlessly nearly all the time, rousing out for meals, or waking occasionally to hear from the soft warmth of your reindeer bag the deep boom of the tent flapping in the wind, or drowsily you may visit other parts of the world, while the drifting snow purrs against the green tent at your head. But outside there is raging chaos. It is blowing a full gale, the air is full of falling snow, and the wind drives this along, and adds it to the loose snow which is lying on the surface of the barrier. Fight your way a few steps away from the tent, and it will be gone. Lose your sense of direction, and there is nothing to guide you back. Expose your face and hands to the wind, and they will very soon be frostbitten. And this at midsummer. Imagine the added cold of spring and autumn, the cold and darkness of winter. The animals suffer most, and during this first blizzard all our ponies were weakened, and two of them became practically useless. It must be remembered that they had stood for five weeks upon a heaving deck. They had been through one very bad gale. The time during which we were unloading the ship was limited, and since that time they had dragged heavy loads the greater part of two hundred miles. Nothing was left undone for them which we could manage, but necessarily the Antarctic is a grim place for ponies. I think Scott felt the sufferings of the ponies more than the animals themselves. It was different for the dogs. These fairly warm blizzards were only a rest for them. Snugly curled up in a hole in the snow, they allowed themselves to be drifted over. Beeliglass and Vida, two half-brothers, who pulled side by side, always insisted upon sharing one hole, 
and for the greater warmth one would lie on top of the other. At intervals of two hours or so they fraternally changed places. This blizzard lasted three days. We now marched nearly due south, the open barrier in front, Mount Terror and the sea behind, for five days, covering fifty-four miles, when, being now level with the southern extremity of the bluff, we laid the bluff depot. The bearings of bluff depot, as well as those of corner camp, are given in Scott's last expedition. The characteristics of these days were the collapse of two of the ponies, Bleacher and Blossom, and the partial collapse of a third, Jimmy Pig, although the surface hardened, becoming a marbled series of wind-swept ridges and domes in this region. For the rest, the new hands were finding out how to keep warm on the barrier, how to pitch a tent and cook a meal in twenty minutes, and the thousand and one little tips which only experience can teach. But all the care in the world could do little for the poor ponies. It must be confessed at once that some of these ponies were very poor material, and it must be conceded that Oates, who was in charge of them, started with a very great handicap. From first to last it was Oates's consummate management, seconded by the care and kindness of the ponies' leaders, which obtained results which often exceeded the most sanguine hopes. One evening we watched Scott digging crumbly blocks of snow out of the barrier and building a rough wall, something like a grouse butt, to the south of his pony. In our inmost hearts I fear we viewed these proceedings with distrust, and saw in it but little usefulness, one little bit of leaky wall in a great plain of snow. But a very little wind, which you must understand comes almost invariably from the south, convinced us from personal experience what a boon these walls could be. Henceforth every night, on camping, each pony leader built a wall behind his pony while his pemmican was cooking, and came out after supper to finish this wall before he turned into his sleeping-bag. No small thing, when you consider that the warmth of your hours of rest depends largely upon getting into your bag immediately you have eaten your hoosh and cocoa, and not seldom you might hear a voice in your dreams, Bill, Nobby's kicked his wall down, and out Bill would go to build it up again. Oates wished to take certain of the ponies as far south as possible on the depot journey, and then to kill them and leave the meat there as a depot of dog food for the polar journey. Scott was against this plan. Here at Bluff Depot he decided to send back the three weakest ponies, Blossom, Bleacher and Jimmy Pig, with their leaders, Lieutenant Evans, Ford and Keon. They started back the next morning, February 13th, while the remainder of the party went forward over a surface which gradually became softer as we left behind the windy region of the bluff. We now had with us the two teams of dogs, driven by Mears and Wilson, and five ponies, Scott with Nobby, Oates with Punch, Bowers with Uncle Bill, Gran with Weary Willie, Cherry Garrard with Guts. Scott, Wilson, Mears and myself inhabited one tent, Bowers, Oates and Gran the other. Scott was evolving in his mind means by which ponies should follow one another in a string, the second pony with his leading rein fastened to the back of the sledge of the first, and so on, the cavalcade to be managed by two or three men only instead of one man to lead each pony. Sunday night, February 12th, we started from Bluff Depot, and did seven miles before lunch against a considerable drift and wind. It was pretty cold, and ten minutes after we left our lunch camp with the ponies it was blowing a full blizzard. The dog party had not started, so we camped and slept five in the four-man tent, and it was by no means uncomfortable. Probably this was the time when Scott first thought of taking a five-man party to the Pole. By Monday evening the blizzard was over, 
The dogs came up, and we did six and a half miles of very heavy going. Gran's pony, Weary Willie, a sluggish and obstinate animal, was far behind as usual, when we halted our ponies at the camping-place. Farther off the dog-teams were coming up. What happened never became clear. Poor Weary, it seems, was in difficulties in a snowdrift. The dogs of one team, being very hungry, took charge of their sledge, and in a moment were on the horse, to all purposes a pack of ravenous wolves. Gran and Weary made a good fight, and the dogs were driven off, but Weary came into the camp without his sledge, covered with blood and looking very sick. We halted after doing only three-quarters of a mile more after lunch, for the pony was done, and little wonder. The following day we did seven and a half miles with difficulty, both Uncle Bill and Weary Willie going very slowly and stopping frequently. The going was very deep. The ponies were fast giving out, and it was evident that we had much to learn as to their use on the barrier. They were thin and very hungry. Their rations were unsatisfactory, and the autumn temperatures and winds were beyond their strength. We went on one more day in a minus twenty temperature, and light airs, and then in latitude seventy-nine degrees twenty-nine minutes south, it was determined to lay the depot, which was afterwards known as one ton, and return. In view of subsequent events it should be realised that this depot was just a cairn of snow, in which we buried food and oil, and over which a flag waved on a bamboo. There is no land visible from one ton, except on a very clear day, and it is a hundred and thirty geographical miles from Hut Point. We spent a day making up the mound, which contained about a ton of provisions, oil, compressed fodder, oats, and other necessaries for the forthcoming polar journey. Scott was satisfied with the result, and indeed this depot ensured that we could start southwards for the pole fully laden from this point. Here the party was again split into two for the return. Scott was anxious to get such news about the landing of Campbell's party on King Edward VII's land as the ship should have left at Hut Point on her return journey. He decided to take the two dog-teams, the first with himself and Mears, the second with Wilson and myself, and make a quick return, leaving Bowers with Oates and Gran to help him bring back the five ponies, driving them one behind the other. End of chapter 5, part 1